It's the end of December and time for a little retrospective on this year's Buyer's Mind. Welcome to the Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shore. Well, welcome to The Buyer's Mind, the podcast that explores the psychology of a purchase decision. And when you understand your customer, you can reverse engineer your sales presentation to meet your customer's needs. I'm Paul Murphy, the producer of The Buyer's Mind. Jeff Shore is off. It is Christmas Day, after all. And we're hoping you'll enjoy this retrospective of some of the shows that we've had this past year. We'll be starting off with Cal Newport and taking a look at that idea of digital minimalism. You're, one of your rules is to quit social media, which of course is going to cause people to say, what? This is this is America. You can't quit social media. Uh, but you've never had a social media account. I look at Facebook and I go, uh, you talk about addictive. If you have something where you know, there's this constant stream of information about the lives of people that you know uh, that that's that's pretty compelling uh, to be able to lock into that. And yet one of the things that I was uh, reading was the, as you refer to it as the any benefit approach. And I asked myself the question, is there any benefit to knowing what my friend Joe from high school is up to right now? And I would say, well, sure, there's some benefit. Maybe someday I might run into Joe. But at what cost is it worth it for me to keep up on Joe's life? So you're you're looking at it and saying, no, 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 no. Social media has probably done way more harm than than good at this point. I think this is definitely true. And in fact, I would even... Uh, correct this statement a little bit that instead of saying what's compelling about social media is that it gives you a constant stream of information about people you know, actually the way they've engineered these tools is much more insidious. What makes social media irresistible is that they have configured them to be a constant stream of information for people you know about you. That's what they really hoed in on around the time that they moved the mobile to get people to start compulsively using these apps way more than they were before, is that they mm -hmm. turned them into these streams of social approval indicators, likes and hearts and retweets and photo auto tags that arrive in this app with intermittent reinforcement, which makes it almost impossible not to check. And they know exactly what they're doing. I mean, they studied the psychology literature. They needed you to have 10x more engagement with this app so that they could get their investors returned when they did IPO. Uh, so these things are engineered into to be compulsive. But there's, there's two elements here. There's the impact in your personal life. There's the impact in your professional life. The personal life I get into more in digital minimalism and deep work. I come at it from the professional perspective and quit social media is a, a title for a broader concept, which is you know, if you make a living using your brain, uh, you're a skilled practitioner, like any other skilled practitioner through history, you should be very selective about your tools. Don't just sign up for something because you can come up with some benefit it might sometime give you or your business. You would never buy a piece of garden equipment from Home Depot with that mindset. Like, hey, maybe this thing will be useful in my yard at some point. Let me buy it. Uh, if you were a farmer, you would never invest in some complex piece of machinery without really knowing why this was really worth the investment. And so all I'm saying is when it comes to digital network tools in the professional sphere, you need to have the same selectivity. Uh, it's very naive, and we would never do this in any other skilled profession to just say, hey, if there's some benefit, why not? Because there's huge cost to these things. So you have to do a very careful cost-benefit analysis and only invest your time in things that are going to give you huge wins on goals that are very, very important to you. We really enjoy having our own team talk to you as well and share their experiences. So here's a little bit of Ryan Taft and a little bit of Amy O'Connor from this year's list of podcasts. When we think about podcasts. communication, the best communication 
the most effective communication is going to be face-to-face. But then when you look and you say, if that's the best, well, then what's the next below that, right? Is it, it, it's got to be some sort of of exchange, not just a, a an email is not an exchange, right? An email is just a one-sided conversation that takes place a bit at a time. Yeah. Uh, but certainly when we look at the idea of a phone call, uh, it should be more powerful. And yet salespeople are going to look at it and say, they just don't want to make phone calls. What yeah. do you think it is about, do you think, is it telephobia? Is it just, what do you think it is about salespeople who just do not want to make a phone call? Well, I think it's experience part of it. I mean, if I'm being just as candid as possible. I can remember sitting in the sales office, making follow-up calls, and here's kind of how it would go. I'd get the first registration card, if you will, if anybody remembers the days when you had your little, your file folder box that you ranked your leads, A, B, C, Jeff, you remember these, right? I didn't have a C. But, um, but I would, I'd pull out that first card and okay, it was a John and Sarah and I would dial the phone number and it would be disconnected. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, well, that's, that's too bad. I'd pick up the next one up wrong number. I'd pick up the next one up disconnected up wrong number up, not interested. Don't call me again. And, and by the time I got to the 10th one, I'm like, well, this is completely unproductive. And that's just me being honest. And so I looked at it as unfruitful primarily because I was looking for instant results. I think this is the exact same phenomenon that happens when you see people go to the gym on January 2nd and quit by January 23rd. Mm-hmm. is they're looking for instant results. And the reality is, is that when it comes to follow-up, if we could change our focus from results to just consistent behaviors, uh, some of that, some of that um, anxiety around making calls starts to go away because now I'm not looking to do it and judging whether I'm good or bad or my sales manager thinks I'm good or bad. Now I'm doing it just because it's what I do. When we have this common phrase that comes up virtually every salesperson who's been on the job for more than about 14 minutes. uh, They've heard somebody say, I want to think about it, right? We want to think about it and we will get back to you. And I was reading this recently, one of our favorites, Robert Cialdini. I was reading this uh, recently, something that Robert Cialdini had written about this concept and the idea that the most powerful deadline of all time is now it's right now the most powerful Mm -hmm. deadline is right now because when we are are in a situation where i have to decide something right now versus i want to think about it and the interesting dichotomy there or sometimes the conflict in our customer's mind is that right now sounds like a hard decision to make but in reality i want to think about it is a harder decision for them to make. Why is that the case, Amy? Well, now is knowable, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, now I know all the facts in front of me. I know what the price is. I know what the time frame is. I know what I'm getting. It's all laid out here in front of me. But the future is full of unknowns. What happens to the price when I walk out? What happens to availability when I walk out? And then I have to go through all of those types of things as a buyer you know, I'm having to process that. And then, of course, I'm having to process what does my life look like going forward when, again, the now I know what those variables are. We're also honored to have Bill Caskey and Brian Neal join us for the podcast. Let's listen. 
Well, one of the things that you do uh, quite well, I know many of our audience members are familiar with the the Advanced Selling Podcast, is that the tone is, um, it's it's sort of, what's the old saying, right? We take our business seriously, our, ourselves less so. We, we've got <laughs> all of the stress and aggravation and negative environment that we want in our sales job day after day. Sometimes it's uh, a breath of fresh air to hear something that's just a little bit more, hey, can we all just sort of like take a chill pill and relax a little bit? It, it, was that part of your strategy from the very beginning to to get your listener to step away from the mayhem and the chaos a little bit and just kind of kick your feet up a little bit? Yeah, no, no doubt. It's on, it was on purpose. We we always decided that we wanted to be just ourselves. We didn't want to do a shtick. We didn't want to yell at people and scream through the mic. It wasn't going to be a walk on hot coal sort of deal. And we wanted to let them in on our real lives too. And so we just think by just the natural openness, the genuineness of who we are as people, we don't take ourselves seriously. Um, that we've of all the comments that we've gotten over the years, the one that's consistent the most is I feel like I know you guys, I feel like I can hang out with you. Um, and so, so that was on purpose. And at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult because we just be us. And if you came and sat in the office with us and hung out or went to lunch with us, you'd be like, Hey, you guys are kind of like the same thing. You know, when you turn the mics on in the morning, the, the idea that Brian and I come into the studio, we meet, let's just say at nine o'clock on Monday and we say, what's happening in your world? And he says, Hey, I just had a client who's really struggling with their message. And we say, okay, let's do one on messaging. And he comes up with two or three things. I come up with two or three things, never, no script. I mean, it's never scripted, but we do have some bullet points of things that we think it's important for our audience to hear. So, so in 15, 20 minutes, we have a podcast outlined produced and done. And then we hand it to Travis who takes it from there. So it, it really is a fun process. And I think the secret there is to not over, overanalyze it and over prepare. There's a direct uh, connection then over to what salespeople should be doing, right? You two talk about just being yourselves and uh, not trying to put on this persona. It's just two people who are being very, very real. And yet, what do we see? We see salespeople who sometimes think that they have to be somebody else, usually because they learn something bogus in a training session that says, if you say these words, these words all the time. You know, you're... And, and so, we have salespeople that are, are, are a different human being. And I'm going to guess, I've never heard it from you directly, but I'm going to guess that two of you would say, uh, for God's sake, no, be yourself. It's the be you're the be you're the best at the world at being yourself. Yeah, that, absolutely. When when I was uh, uh, early on in my uh, dating career, um, my girlfriend said uh, I worked for Procter and Gamble right out of college, and she used to tell me that I had a P and G voice. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you change your voice when you talk on the phone for work. I'm like, no, I don't. She goes, yeah, you do. And then I started paying attention to that. And I did, I did the whole radio jockey voice. Like you just did, like the phone would ring in the morning and I like <clears throat> clear it out. Like, Oh, this is Brian. Hey, can I help you today? Brian Brocker and Gamble. Where can I, can I sell you some diapers or toilet paper? You know, and it was, it was so not real. And the whole thing was, was a shtick. Cause I was taught that I had to be this way, say these things. And people can see right through all that these days. The other thing is that takes effort. Yeah. It takes no effort to be me. You're going to, some are like it, some hate it, but it's no, it's effortless. It takes lots of effort to pretend to be somebody else. Yeah. Sometimes in, in class, we will role play with people. And if we, if they're not familiar with our, our stick, the way we start by saying, okay, I'm the buyer, you're the seller, let's hear it. And they, they magically transform, like Brian said, into somebody else, somebody different. And I would say, okay, 
Now, just talk to me like I'm Bill. Just just forget about the role play. Just talk to me. And they go back to the perfect voice. I call it the perfect voice. The perfect voice is your voice. It's not the manufactured persona voice, like you said, Jeff. It's just be who you are. If that's not good enough, then either maybe you either ought to get out of your sales organization or out of your company, or it's not a prospect. Jay Bear joined us to talk about his new book, Talk Triggers. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to go out and get a copy. Here's Jay Bear. When we look at the idea of uh, developing talk triggers, it seems to me that there are are two ways that they could happen. One is organically, because just the culture of an organization is set up to allow for such things to happen, even on a one-on-one. Uh, but then the other is systematically to be able to go through and say, okay, what are we going to do as an organization? Something that's dependable and repeatable that we could absolutely be known for. You, you use, for example, the cookie of the double tree as an example yeah. of that. Uh, do you look at this more and say, you know, look, build the type of culture where talk triggers are just going to happen because people are really good to one another? Or do you look at it more and say, no, nah, it's got to be more systematic than that? Well, it's one begets the other, I think. One of the things that we talk about in the book and we certainly see in our consulting business when we help organizations come up with, uh, you know, sort of differentiators that that spur conversation is that everybody's got to be on the same page, right? It, it can't just be uh, one person's idea. It has to be supported uh, in sales. It's got to be supported in service. It's got to be supported in marketing, in supply chain. All the different departments have to be on board. And that requires, uh, at, at some level, a customer-focused culture, which sounds self-evident, but I think as we mm -hmm. all know, uh, mm -hmm. not all businesses are customer-focused, even though they like to believe that they are. So, mm -hmm. so culture is definitely a part of it. But one of the challenges that we've observed and why this book exists is that very few companies are intentional about word of mouth. They, they just figure, well, look, if we run a competent business, our customers will naturally talk about us. Mm -hmm. And meh, I mean, I guess a little, but mm -hmm. the reality is that competency doesn't create conversations. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know all of your listeners, Jeff, but I'm sure I know some of them. Uh, I'll tell you this, though. Nobody listening to your show has ever said, hey, let me tell you about this perfectly adequate experience I just had. Right. Like nobody yeah. says that because it's not a good story. It's not mm -hmm. a story worth telling. And it's not a story worth listening to. And, yeah. and, you know, some of this is just is just physiology. As human beings, we are wired to discuss things that are different, things that break an existing pattern and ignore things that are average, things that adhere to an existing pattern. And so mm -hmm. what we recommend in the book is to say, yeah, of course you want to be a competent business. That's how you retain customers. But do something, just one thing, make one unconventional choice in mm -hmm. your customer experience that is designed to create uh, conversations. And, and that's mm -hmm. really what uh, the secret of the book is, is to say, let's all get together culturally and say, we're going to do this and then find one thing. Like the, like the hotel chain I mentioned, not Doubletree, but Graduate Hotels. Terrific business based in uh, Chicago. They have 13 hotels open, 20 by the end of this year. Each mm -hmm. of their hotels are in a college town. And each mm -hmm. hotel is adjacent, literally a budding campus of a major university. There's one here in Bloomington uh, that's, that's uh, tied into Indiana University. There's, you know, there's lots of them. Uh, and, and each hotel is designed completely custom to be evocative of the history, traditions, and nostalgia of that university. So the colors match. There's all kinds of uh, objects. It's almost a museum and homage to the university. Hotel is, of course, called The Graduate. Each of the hotels, instead of having the regular plastic room key that everybody listening has had 
14,000 times. Uh, and every room key just has the logo of the hotel on the back. It's the Hyatt, you know, and the key has the Hyatt logo on the back. What the graduate does is for every one of their hotels, they do a bunch of research on, on famous um, graduates of that institution. And the room keys in each of the hotels are pretend student ID cards of famous graduates. So, so the, uh, the, the location in Athens, Georgia, tied into the University of Georgia, has Dominique Wilkins, who is an NBA mm-hmm. Hall of Famer. His student ID card is one of your room keys. Uh, Ernie Johnson, who's the host of NBA on TNT, his, his ID card is a room key. And what's amazing about it is they take something that's so perfunctory, so mundane, so boring, and they just put a little twist on it. And it costs mm-hmm. them half a cent more per key to do that. So relatively insignificant. Uh, and it creates all these conversations. People collect them like baseball cards. Right. It's amazing. Right. Well, and then how many times have those showed up on somebody's Instagram feed? I right. mean, this countless it, times, countless yeah, right. times. So yeah, it's just doing it. something with intentionality um, that that you know that people will say, "Hey, I haven't seen that before. Let me share that with my friends." Ironically, you and I are recording the show on Uber Conference, mm-hmm. and Uber Conference is one of the case studies in the book because mm-hmm. of their hilarious uh, and truly outstanding on hold music. Right. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, if you call into Uber Conference, uh, you can choose whatever hold music you want, but they've got a a, a couple that they wrote uh, about a guy who's sitting on hold all day long. And it's just it's his, his ballad of being on hold. And 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 I, I, I do this all the time. I, I somebody will be on hold for a while and and I'll, I'll finally jump on. And they're laughing. They're they're literally yeah. laughing when I pick up the phone. It's uh, it's hilarious. Exactly. Uh, by the way, yeah. w- one quick thing, you could put any music you want of your choice as your whole music on Uber conference. Yes. And we have somebody in our company who puts, uh, who plays, uh, uh, never going to give you up by, uh, Rick Astley. Nice. So we can get Rick nice. rolled when somebody uh, calls into I the like conference. That. Good idea. Our next guest is a very well-known author in the sales community, Andrea Waltz. She wrote the book, go for no. Let's listen. So and give us the story. Give us the background of go for no. So I actually thought that I was a spectacular salesperson and and had a hard time admitting that I didn't like to hear the word no, that I had a fear of uh, failure and rejection and didn't want to look like one of those pushy, aggressive salespeople. But so Mm -hmm. Richard tells me the story about how he was working in a men's clothing store and the district manager, a guy by the name of Harold, came in one day to do a store visit. And he was actually not doing Richard was not doing all of that, all that well. And Mm -hmm. uh, so he decides he would impress Harold on this store visit. Um, Luckily, that day, a very well-dressed customer comes in the store, announces he wants to buy an entire wardrobe of clothing. Richard proceeds to take care of this customer, sell him a suit, sport coat, slacks, ties, belt, underwear, pocket square. It was like $1,100 mm-hmm. sale. And now mm-hmm. he's thinking that Harold's going to be so impressed and congratulate him. And instead, Harold asks him, Richard, you know, out of curiosity, what did that customer say no to? And Richard was kind of mad because he has this spectacular sale. And he's like, Harold, what do you mean? That, what did the customer say? no to. I just had this fantastic sale. Didn't you see it? And Harold said, yes, I saw it. We know all of the yeses. I'm just asking you, you know, what did that customer say no to? And which forced Richard to review the sale in his mind. And he said, Harold, listen, everything I showed that guy, everything I laid in front of him, he purchased. And Mm -hmm. then Harold asked him the really important question, which was, well, then how did you know he was done? And that was the question that kind of reframed the whole thing for Richard. And he said he realized how he knew he was done because that customer had hit his mental spending limit of $1,100. And Mm -hmm. he decided the sale was over 
took the customer to the register, rang him up, sent him on his way. And it was in that moment that he learned kind of the secret. And Harold basically said, you know, you're a good salesperson, but your fear of the word no is going to kill you. If you could just mm -hmm. get over that, I think you could become one of the great ones. So Richard becomes an award-winning salesman after a year of putting go for no in practice, gets into training. We finally meet. And then he tells me that story and I have my own epiphany, which is mm -hmm. like, Hey, I need to adopt this philosophy too, which I did um, both on the job and then later when we launched our company. Tune in next week to The Buyer's Mind when we review the rest of the year's podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes to do so and leave a comment letting us know how The Buyer's Mind has impacted you. Thank you for listening. And as Jeff always says, go out there and change someone's world. Mm -hmm.